0: Hey guys how you doing? <clears throat> I hope this week has been kind to you. I hope you're doing all right. Um, today is the 15th of December in 2020 and it has been a ridiculous year. It flew by. It's been a lot, but we're here. you're here. so that's amazing. And I'm proud of you. And I know that uh, things will come to be how you need them to be. In any case, I hope you're taking care of yourself. I hope you're being honest with yourself. And I hope that you are being gentle with yourself, as gentle as you are with everybody else. Um, thank you for joining me again. I believe this is episode... What are we on? Four... I won't say five, I think four, not three, probably four. Um, so I'm grateful that you're here. I'm iterating again, I don't care about numbers. I think, yeah, this is the second channel we have, and, um, I'm just glad for the handful of anyone who appreciates this, I appreciate you, um... Happy Saturday! No, it's not Saturday. What? It's Tuesday. (laughs) I'm used to executing this at the end of a week, and it is a Tuesday. My week has been crazy, Uh, hence the discombobulation. I've handed in my last assignment last week uh, on Friday, and since then, my things have not stopped. I still have obligations. But um, on my end, I've prioritized something quite unusual. I've made a point to not work, <laughs> and that sounds a bit ridiculous and simple too, but um, I told myself we're not working um and and you think that's easy to desist from um but i I'm telling you when you are used to the consistent going in and executing things uh It's not that simple, and you learn a lot about yourself. I learned that I have a problem with idleness. I used to think I like to chill and stuff, but I think I always preoccupy myself with something. And so I instructed myself to absolutely refrain. Um, The assignments are done. My other things will, will take a few weeks before they're necessary. So I was like, we're not working now. In part, it's because of something I encountered a couple days ago. It was a YouTube video of um, previously employed under. Sorry, having beer. (laughs) Um, They were employed under BuzzFeed, and so the typical viral stories that everybody waits for, the title is Why We Left BuzzFeed. And it was Kit and Joanne. I hope those are the correct names. But point is, one of the young ladies mentioned that I was dying. I felt like I'm fine. I'm functioning. I'm doing the things. But I was actually dying. And, you know, she got befallen by anxiety attack. She didn't know what it was. Um, And a therapist told her, hey, take a month off. And I love the way she phrased it. She said her therapist told her, you can take a voluntary leave now. Give yourself 30 days. Take time off. Or you're going to take leave eventually, but it will be very tragic. Uh, It'll be something very serious. It'll be necessary and it won't just be leave. It won't be vacation. It'll be a breakdown. And I had to think about that when I keep glorifying, executing things, doing things. I'm always hunched over a device trying to get things done. And yeah, I afforded myself. I'm trying to afford myself that time to actually just desist. You know, you want to get things done, things on your mind. It's like, I have time. I've done what's urgent. Let me just be and see what that looks like. And it's very uncomfortable, by the way. (laughs) Um, So yeah, that's what's happening. Snacks, rest, uh, fun, um, seeing people I care about. That's not very easy for me. I tend to really close off. It's... mm, Seeing people, mm, for me, it's... Alright, so not working's been a thing on my end. Another thing is dating just a little bit i guess um not quite dating i don't know what but um something that feels quite lovely so i'm going to entertain that also and just be in it and not feel like oh i'm having too much joy where's the stress let me find an assignment or something to pressure me um so that's been quite lovely um it's a time of change. The year' is winding down, and I'm excited for things to come and I'm also excited for things to come on your end um <clears throat> My last concern personally I noticed um i'm n- I don't dream <laughs> anymore I don't think I've dreamed I've dreamt in like a week uh for me that's not a always a great uh, thing. My dreams are important, my nature, my purpose, and all of these things, I need my dreams. But I'm also trying to establish a different relationship with my dreams. And because typically I interpret it as this "Idlozi," and there's something urgent to be shared, we'll share. And so it can be either way. Uh, Not dreaming could mean, cool, you're on the right track, you got what we said. Or it could mean you're frankly spiraling in a direction where you're really throwing out everything we asked you and taught you. But I've been trying to fervently, especially after executing the things I had to execute, um, definitely make sure I'm honoring what I'm aware of and not just kind of ID pretending I don't understand. Uh, So that's where I am with that. On that note... Darlings, first thing I want to start with, we have about five or six segments actually, Um, but I wanted to indicate that this will be an installation that's highly engaging, a bit, you know, scholarly in a sense, uh, about government and social contracts and culture and socialization. I don't know how intermingling you find those to be, but I thought this could be quite cohesive. I made little notes here uh, to try to organize things for cohesion and make sure we are following in a sense that makes sense. Sense that makes sense. Okay. (laughs) So please get your snacks, get your drinks, tell your babies to go, I don't know, what do they watch? uh, Pepper Pig? What, What are the kids watching now? I'm so behind. I'm so so behind um but yes tell them to give you a minute um we're gonna talk about some things that are quite interesting and then some things that I think are quite important mm. Mm, mm. Mm. right <clears throat> Okay, the first thing is, of course, we will go to our good old friend, Twitter. I love Twitter, and it's absolutely been a place of learning as much as it's been a place of laughter and entertainment, so I'm definitely going to depart from here today, so there was an interesting uh, conversation started by a user named moonchild 19 underscore moonchild 19 And she states, My least favorite people are people who come in and do nothing. The so-called, quote-unquote, lazy cousins. Don't come rather. If you're not here to help out or sing, where are you going? Because all your presence does is create more work for those who do contribute. Stay home. Be useless there. She follows this up with, uh the problem is that you think there's something special. Ne laziness, L- uh, laziness. Yenu. there really isn't. Songya na songye, but we, but get, oh, right. I'm uh, me, the parts I can pronounce. I don't want to offend. Um, and the more people contribute, the less work there is to do overall. It's basic empathy and group work dynamics. You're not special." Okay, so that's the thread they started, and it went crazy at the time that I had saved this. They had 226 quoted tweets and 50 retweets and 163 likes, so you know this resonated. (laughs) And I was like, we have to talk about this, Um, because I know it's not a new sentiment I'm sure you've all had remarks and, and heard people judge or say things or outline their feelings surrounding this. It is a bit contentious. It's a tradition. It's a thing that is intrinsic. It's fundamental to our culture. It's something we've been doing a long time. It's highly framed as noble to participate. Um, Uh, I hope that's it. Um, But yes, it's somebody has a wedding, uh, a funeral, an event, whatever. You go there, you show up on time, you help with food prep, setting up and all of that. And later on, we enjoy it. We eat, we drink. Um, It's glorious. The food is always just unbelievable. There's reconnection. You know, creates a social cohesion. It's a cultural facet that ensures we stay in touch. And like this person is indicating in this very uh, bold tweet, uh, <laughs> it's about empathy. It reminds us, it humbles us, it grounds us again. Depending on how you want to see it. But um, that's what I'm getting from this. Alright. um, I'll get into the question this brought up for me afterwards but let's get into these spicy responses because <laughs> as usual people had a whole lot to say in response and so again just like last week i made sure i did not read these responses i'm going to go through them with you and hopefully you can email me so, oh, the email so the email is more about you pod at gmail.com more about you at gmail.com Let me know what your thoughts are on this, what you want to discuss, and let me know what you think of what people are saying in this regard. So, first response. (laughs) I already know there's going to be so much messiness here. So, Tia Matsime says, people are being so snacks on this tweet. Um, You are not the one who is being forced to do something. You are not the only one who doesn't want to work. Huh, okay. Uh, the next person, M bla M says that's why I stay at home because I can't. I'm only energetic when I'm at work. I'm not domesticated at all. <laughs> crying emoji. <laughs> the next response um just says I'm staying I'm not staying home <laughs> the crying emojis. Next response is I'ma definitely be useless at them because I'm not helping Shem. Right? So this person's like, I'm coming. <laughs> um, the next response comes from, ooh, I hope I say this correctly, Zama uh, You know, Donna Twitter is very intermingled with essays, so I think it's important we embrace learning how to pronounce this. But Zama Klubi says, there are people who really... <laughs> I skated over that pronunciation. There are people who really sit and do nothing. I always know that someone, some aunt is going to send me in and out of the kitchen at least 400 times. So might as well pretend to look busy. Okay? Yes, and there is. I agree with that. There's an aunt who has diabetes that they conveniently remember. Who feels like... Mm-hmm, it's just at let Ginger do this for me. And you know it's like come on okay anyways we'll get into that next response is from formerly orcs i like that username formerly orcs the healer Mm, i like this name Arabic people also complain when we don't pitch and hold it as a grudge against us and our parents okay next response um Says I'm so sorry, I respect your enthusiasm, but 99.9% of the time I didn't ask to be there. Like believe me, I wish I didn't have to come and take up your space. Ooh, okay. Next response. I would if my mother would let me. Hello <laughs> The next response, um there are such a pain they are such a pain in the ASS. They ruin everyone's mood food too. Next response by Dazzle Them Baby. Ooh, I like these usernames. I'm sorry I can't be the cousin that reads obituaries and has a law degree and still help out. Am I making sense? <laughs> Ooh, this is heavy. Alright, Um, the next response is, I'm sorry, but I won't be forced to do anything. That's Umlungisi Prince. The next response is, do you communicate with your cousins and ask them to help out there and there? Or do you expect them to read your mind and do as you wish? Hmm, okay. The next response is, why not hire a catering company okay? and a church choir? I feel like I pronounced that wrong. Okay? and a church choir. All right. Uh-huh. next response is from Fifi's Peelman one. That's why I don't attend anything because I know I'm lazy. Hey! truth. <laughs> the next is tit for tat rule. If you have events and fold your hands, do likewise. But personally, I don't like breaking my back at these things. I wash dishes, peel green pepper and make tea. Emoji with the blowing nose. I'm starting to learn that emoji with the blowing nose is actually just, you know, when you've said something spicy. Um, and that's by a.85. The next response is, guess, I'm not going home for Christmas because I nearly said so. Okay, which is, yeah, the handle next to this username of the person who started the thread. Next response is, lol, this is why I sit my ASS at home. My mom will represent the family. Heart emoji. (laughs) See, people are doing that thing we spoke about last week where, you know, they're very spicy. And then just add like a, a cute emoji at the end. Like, mm, okay, you know, I'll drag you a bit. But then, uh, heart, it's all love. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Next responses from Madlo Z with two eyes. Dude, what's wrong with you? Next response is, talk to them, not us. Make peace with people who can't peel, cook and sing and clean. Alright, next response is, please stay at home. I would rather you are not here because you're lazy and will piss me off. Um, okay, alright. Next response is, mean I understand this completely. I was in boarding school most of my schooling time and I'd always arrive on the day of Nkumbi. In- now I'm older, I appreciate the lead-up to include the bonding and things learned about one another while executing tasks. Best of times with fam. That's very true. That's very true. Bonding. Um, the next response by Laratung Nkwe, Nkwe One says, you? Oh, right. Pronunciation again. She's like, you didn't grow up with your cousins. I know how lazy some are. The next one is, they think they're cool ASF, SMH. The next says, honestly, I agree with this. The next response says, I hate it so much. I mean, I'm lazy, but I make myself useful by all means. Nothing cute about being a snob, nothing at all. I appreciate that one. Next response is, lol. You could have just sent this to your family WhatsApp group. Unless you're subbing your cousins here and the laughing emojis, which that's quite true because we... Tell them honey. The next one by Kelebuchile with two with three eyes with four eyes. Okay. Kilepiri. And we're forced to be here. We're forced to be there. We don't really want to be there. Ooh. Okay. Deeper. The next is sing it, sis. The next response is don't y'all rotate. <laughs> the next response is if I'm being forced to go, trust and believe, it. I'll just sit there, Shun. That's sunshine keys. The next is, what is Imkumbi? Okay, well, yeah. I'm presuming we're under the understanding that Imkumbi is, is, you know, mudiro. An event, a thing. A thing. That's the best explanation I can offer you. It's a thing. (laughs) Uh, But you know what it is. Um, Next response. Are we out of responses? What's happening here? Oh, okay. Those are the responses. Okay. Well, yes. Um, with that, I definitely felt like there is a point, um, to absolutely indicating like you're making more work for those of us who are doing the work. Um, there's something very inconsiderate about showing up to enjoy the things that you didn't help, um, prepare that, you know, we all know what it is. If there's 10 to 15 Young ladies, because it tends to be ladies, unless it's the meat. Well, okay, we'll get to that aspect, but it does create a lot. We're preparing food for maybe 50 people to come, and there's only 10 of us here, and you come, and you look amazing, and you smell great, you're not sweaty, you're fresh out the car, you have your cooler box ready, and you're ready to eat and and enjoy, and you're not even going to help wrapping up, to be honest, and so a question arises, which is, are you not considering the ramifications of your presence here, if you're certainly not even contributing? Um, I hear that point, I absolutely do. It's just I, I have the other side to engage with, which is um, the relationships we have with our family that are often not resolved when there's contentious issues. And what it creates for people. I feel like some people who do do this whole, um, I guess they'll class it like a rich aunt or just that cousin. But people have traumas surrounding their families. We have a heritage of not dealing with those traumas. And so ultimately some people are really just trying to spend as little time there as possible but want to support you. And so the only way they know how is, I'm going to come. I'll come but it'll be maybe for two hours and then I'm departing. Um, which you know one could understand Uh, I think another facet that I feel like would be so important for this discussion um, that I didn't capture it but I feel as I'm I'm so sure someone probably mentioned what about the gender dynamic what if we look at that also and say is this directed (laughs) at the the weave wearing females or what about the men because in my observation from what i've seen is the men's labor i won't try to do comparison but gabunzi they come they have a great time they have such a good time the men come and you know the women are roughing it we're sweating and i think their part is go get the supplies we need and stand by where the bribe will be um conducted and you know so, they sit around, they're drinking from early, they're smoking, they're high, they are laughing and, you know, we're in here, we're trying to cook, we're arguing about whose pasta salad or whose chicken is the best and we're going back and forth and Trying to cater for people and their demands and their needs. about this Go get it. This go this go that. We're trying to look out for the kids also, that falls on us because their fathers are drunk. They're in the backyard there by seeing, and you know we gotta check in on the kids. Bring them snacks. Make sure everybody's nobody's crying or if somebody's crying. Why are they crying? Go see how the babies are doing, and it's a lot. I think that's the part that partly made me start to look differently at this because I'm certainly a team when we get there, I'm, I'm not comfortable just sitting there. I'm going to get in and my line is absolutely, uh, what do you need me to do? That being said, I'm not a person who goes, but that has other, other reasons. Like um, I'm pretty socially anxious, I think. Oh my God. Sorry, I'm having a revelation as we speak. I don't know if I have social anxiety. That's interesting. I don't know, because I do enjoy going out and doing things, but on my own. I don't know if that constitutes social anxiety, or if this is just family trauma and there's things I don't want to confront. Uh, But yeah, I see it. I'm here with her. Um, Let's be considerate. I do know also that, you know, as this emerging generation that puts in heavy stakes for very little reward economically. huh? We've created a symbol of success, which is this rich aunt, a person who can swoop in at will, and there's many culminations under that of why we appreciate being that person. It, it, it symbolizes so much. It's achievement, it's comfort, it's boundaries. It sounds nice to be that. But hopefully this will help us also consider what it means to the people who aren't that person, what the payoff is and what it leads to in that regard. And hopefully one day we'll, gender, we'll have the gender conversation behind this um, because the male comfort that I often see with really just um, not being helpful. I know they're chopping wood, they're retrieving this, they're driving everybody there, they're doing all these things. I know, I know, but... Let's keep having that conversation, because that aspect bugs me too, because Lord knows, I know this post was about women, (laughs) it was not written with a man in mind, we don't expect that of them, okay, alright, so I hope you enjoyed that Twitter segment, we're gonna come back, and I want to get a little bit into the gender aspect we spoke about, but it will be an aside, actually, about female criminality. I say this also because I need to pee. <laughs> Drinking and peeing. So I'll be right back, and thank you for listening. Um, yeah, join me shortly. <coughs> Hello, beautiful. Greetings, children of the sun. Welcome back. Hope you're still good. Hope you still have your drink. Or your snacks, or your pet in your lap. I don't know. Hopefully, not in the house because, ooh, mm mm. I don't know why we're doing that. <laughs> but it's your home. Well, I hope it is, Dan. But I hope you're well. And let's continue. Right. The next segment I wanted us to get into. A book I read and found very interesting. It's by a criminologist based in South Africa named Mickey Pistoyos. And What they do basically is they contextualize their understanding of crime statistics and patterns and trends. And they had an interesting, you know, observation, very inductive outlining of female criminality the book is called female killers by mickey pistorius that is m-i-c-k-i pistorius Uh, like the guy who shot that lady right (laughs) all right so i think what i appreciated about this document this book absolutely gave me more understanding of why women commit crime um it gave me an understanding of, of myself too um i believe was it Jordan B. Peterson, I admire that man by the way, who just said "Um, you need to engage with the darkest parts of yourself so you are, know what you are capable of. I am a person who has anger issues. I have resentment issues and a lot of built up things that, ooh lord, um, so I need to know what I'm capable of. When I think of things, when I see things, when I hear stories and I nod a little bit, I need to know why it resonates. <clears throat> Protect everybody who's who's involved in the situation and just not naively deny that I too am human. I think a huge trend that's come out in crime data is absolutely that nobody who commits gruesome crimes, not nobody, but it's not often that they woke up and decided to embark on it. But if we naively decide it's just not us, it's so far from us, we will become them. (laughs) <laughs> so it's great to know okay if you don't appreciate him coming home three days later um, and he didn't tell you why well hey come on get it right because you know what you're thinking of not to say you're thinking of anything ridiculous but know your triggers know what you really are not able to handle and get away from it <clears throat> if you can See, I'm sitting here talking. I want to learn this too. <laughs> I can't wait until I enact these things I talk about. Uh, but yes, I'm still a student in life. So, let's get into some of the insights from the book Female Killers by Nikki Pastorius. Contextualizing female crime, specifically in regards to killing. Uh, so, the insights include the fact that I made notes here. It's within the Judeo-Christian framework that, um, essentially a woman was a Decepticon. A woman was a betrayer. She was, um, a figure of deviance. And that was the figure Eve, okay? So that's a very traditional idea that women had. That was the first instance that, um at least religiously in terms of the Bible, the Christian Bible, that we encounter women as deviants. Okay. Um, So there's this idea that was enforced upon women gender-wise where they were being kept indoors. Um, And the fact that this contributed to them not being exposed to situations which which could awaken temptation to commit crime. So that's an interesting consideration for me just because I'm thinking of how we like to presume that women are these angelic great people. But what room have we had to commit crime? How exempt do we think we are from from doing that? Uh, If we had the rain, the range, the resources, would we also conduct ourselves the way our counterparts have? Hmm. Next, she says, the Victorians linked female criminality to sexual perversion. Uh, (laughs) This is interesting because it trickles into queerness and ideas there with how society handles non-traditional presentation or attraction. And there's a, a pathology that's always attached to the unfamiliar. And so it, it's obviously very predictable that women acting in a way that's not very Judeo-Christian would have been ascribed to some kind of deviance sexually, you know. Uh, the next consideration was the inclination to link criminality to sexuality and how it dates back much farther than Victorian times and might even be seen as a remnant of the biblical Delilah who betrayed Samson. Right, so the Bible obviously has different albums. <laughs> There's different installments of that document. Um, I guess, I don't know what the Christians are there doing. Are y'all picking the one you appreciate? What happens? Do you ignore that other ones exist? How does that work? Do you just buy the one that's closest to you and go by that? What about the tens and tens of installments and, and all of these things that are relevant? Do you ignore that? How does that work? How do you engage with that? Because, as it says, this figure, the Delilah, I know there's also the entity, Lilith. They keep getting conveniently excluded from these tales, and obviously they are all these deviant, B-I-T-C-Hs who are dangerous, and they're witches, and one didn't want to have a child, and the other one was this and this. Pathologies of gender and how we consider women who are not acting in accordance with expectation I love this. I love this uh, idea of the biblical Delilah. I like this. Uh, Women who deviate uh, excite me. The next aspect is how some women use their sexuality to induce men into becoming their accomplices in crime. Ah, Right? You know, when you have a young man who is not very uh, bright or or self-assured, who you know you can leverage some things over... And get involved in something, so that's a frequent one whereby you know a woman can convince a man to participate really in her endeavor of crime. I like that uh, that observation. The next one is female biology um, being used as a compass for signs of criminality. So I think that definitely relates to procreation and whether or not you can bear. If you can have kids, you know, you are just a Madonna, you are a Mary, you are a hailed saint. But if you are infertile, something is up, you are either a witch or bewitched, especially if you express the sentiment of really not giving a damn about having kids, which I'm currently undergoing. Um, It's interesting, actually, as a person who I identify as childfree, having to reassure people, I'm not going to harm your kid, though. I just don't want to make one. At this point in my life, I'm not counting it out like, oh, I never will. I know I likely will. But right now, I cannot be asked to give a damn about having a human. The next consideration was harassment is a highly significant reminder to women that paternalism accrues only to women who conform to a sex role which requires obedience to men. Mm. That's powerful. So paternalism, the protections of patriarchy, the vestiges that our mothers, our grandmothers, you know, uh, to some degree, not voluntarily, I'm not trying to make it seem very simple and like, oh, they just made foolish choices. But I will say um, there's a participation in the patriarchy that does benefit us. And I think it's why a lot of traditional, much more grown women perhaps just fervently abide by it. They want their husband who fixes things, who who who, who gives protection, who sorts out her emotional uh, chaos, and, and they need that. Whereas the emerging generations are really just saying, look, I, <laughs> I'd rather not. No, thanks. I'll be fine, actually. Um, I like that. Women who conform to a sex role which requires obedience to men. And we've seen that. We've seen that a man can give you much favor until you are not acting in the capacity that benefits him directly. So whether that's giving him sex, whether that's um, boosting his image and being seen with you, or associated with you, or whether that's just the companionship and being a bosom that's there for him to cry on when he makes these self-inflicted mistakes. Um, The moment you don't do that anymore... There's a demonization and you're just banished from his kingdom of women he'll protect. We speak a lot about that in, in feminist um, literature about how patriarchy discards everybody who doesn't participate. Like, you think you're in the club. You think it's for you. You love the institution. Act out a line one time and see how much it cares about you. Okay, the next consideration was it is time that we recognize that some women are quite capable of committing violent crimes simply because they want to. Boom. There we go. I love that. A couple weeks ago, somebody asked, hey, why do women cheat? And a lot of people spoke about, well, men cheat and these are the conditions and we need this and we need that. That's true. But in addition, sometimes we actually do have, as women, the capacity to just be very um, We have criminal instinct, too. We have these tendencies, too. Womanhood does not prevent us from that. Uh, Alright, so the first chapter of this book, Battered Women. So, for centuries, men had the right to abuse and beat their wives. Okay. I want to indicate here as we speak about the whole for centuries thing. This does not center African black women. So as we speak about this whole for centuries thing, I'm not, I'm skeptical about how much this applies to us, um, to black African women, black African young girls. Um, but I guess in the Victorian sense, I guess that timeline, the mainstream timeline of what centuries were, will take that. The next consideration is, since a man was held accountable for his wife's beha- misbehavior, he had the right to chastise her. I love this. Um, in my course, so classical um, sociological theorists, Auguste Comte was based in France. He had an observation whereby women were not even considered citizens in France. By that meaning you are not adult enough to be counted, to vote, or to be held accountable. If you do something, clearly your man is out of line. It's, he, falls, he falls on the stake on behalf of your mistakes. And you can see in that dynamic how there's a duality of, wow, so much protection. Whatever I do, it's not up to me. I didn't know better. I'm just a woman. But there's also the stripping of agency because, frankly, you can't really do much living under a shadow, can you? <clears throat> he had the right to chastise her. So that justified this abuse. Um, remember, under the chapter of battered women. The next aspect, um, in South Africa in 1999, um, was the first time there was some kind of policies, um, legislatively enforced about preventing the battering of women, and in the USA, the first time this was done was in Alabama in 1871, okay, that was the introductions of the first laws prohibiting violations related to domestic violence, huh, Okay, the next consideration is the tedium of essay protection orders. Mickey Pastorius outlines how cumbersome it is to actually get protection legally, um, especially in light of circumstances relating to domestic violence for women, anyways. Um, The next is male. Many male abusers experience protection orders as challenges and are infuriated by them. Hello, familiar with this. (laughs) Absolutely, I am familiar with going to a police station asking for protection and they just told me, go back home, we'll come shortly, and they never came. Um, But even the idea that I did that aggravates the situation and it changes how people look at even reporting. But I'm sure we'll get into that. The next consideration... Mickey indicates how within the first month of implementation of the South African Domestic Violence Act, 15 women were killed by their abusive partners shortly after protection orders were served. So that speaks a lot to the psychology of what goes behind males and how they, well, well... (laughs) The abusers, I'll say that. Let me not say males. Male abusers and how they perceive a protection order. It's like, oh, okay, you're playing with me. Okay. Um, And it's a huge leap. It's a very huge leap to go from being highly upset or feeling offended, even if you can, to killing. I'll indicate. 15 women were killed by their abusive partners shortly after protection orders were served. Within the first month... That's not a femicide. I don't know what else could be. Um, The next consideration is these women grew up in a similar environment and know no better. The next is childhood patterns may be repeated in adulthood, perhaps in a misguided attempt to resolve them. Hello. Absolutely. We do that in all facets of our lives. We mirror what we grew up seeing, whether or not we even approve of it. We, we, We literally reenact that. The next is too many women still hope. That their good their good conduct will rectify their partner's unacceptable behavior. So that's the echo of the Victorian idea. That how I behave will be how I'll be treated. And uh, unfortunately, that's not true. The next is abusive men as uh, are ordinary individuals who harbor traditional expectations of their partners. Okay, I guess that's the aspect of not thinking that these exceptional human beings who are so different from all these other men. The final consideration I'll do for this chapter because we have to move on. um, These men deal with stress through violence. And abusive men refuse to discuss their emotions. I didn't do this chapter justice, obviously, but I'm hoping you'll go in and have a look at that and engage a little bit with what is happening there by female crime as to the case of battered women. Um, and so the final note here in this chapter's murder triggers, the frequency of assault, forced sex, the man's intoxication, alcohol and drug abuse, threats by man to kill among others. So those are a few indicators that mm, something is very dire here. All right, next chapter. The next is called Children Who Kill. All right, so it says they are usually assumed to be suffering psychosis or abused by parents, right? Um, though the behavior is psychotic, the children actually are not. Which is fascinating, right? You never ascribe criminality to kids, uh, especially on this, on this level, murder. Um, so it says homicidal children often run away from home and play truant, in quotes. Uh, children who kill a parent are often victims of sexual abuse by that parent. The next is homicidal children report struggling to fit in. Um, and there's a condition called aheresis, E-H-U-R-E-S-I-S, the inability to constantly hold, um, to, you become incontinent at any age. Um, and apparently that's highly linked to violent behavior. Um, so Parasite is a parent, Parasite is the murder of, where Parents sexually abused them and they were parent, protecting the parent, parent. Okay, this is when a father is killed by their child. The parents sexually abused them. And also they were protecting a parent from domestic abuse by their father. Um, they didn't favor the romantic affairs, perhaps, between the parents, which is a twisted dimension of psychology where kids feel this romantic possession over a parent, often a mother. And then infanticide is, teen, is often uh, seen with teenage pregnancy, which puts on let's have a conversation about abortion. Um, and the killing of siblings is often out of jealousy. And then there are religious or cultic murders, which is Satanism inspired. It's just senseless killing based on, you know, the cultic amalgamation. And then, yeah, typically gangs are a thing that boys get into. Um, and it says girls tend to target family members, not strangers, um, and they often enlist the help of a boyfriend to commit the murder, and juvenile killers know how to take advantage of their innocent appearance. And finally, kids can be infantilized or fear maturing. They can engage in delinquent behavior or fake illness to remain under the authority wing of their parents. Ooh, Deep... Okay, this will be the final chapter I think that I'll go into um, because we need to move on. There's other things that we need to go into. So this chapter is chapter three, female serial killers. Uh, so it says, male serial killers do so to gratify a deep subconscious and psychological need. Most, most female serial killers are as such for financial gain. Female serial killers kill more than those motivated by domestic violence. Um, so early deprivation causes consciously or subconsciously the mother figure to lead... Um, okay, early deprivation caused consciously or subconsciously by the mother figure may lead to her son developing into a serial killer. I've heard about that a lot. The relation between how males experience their mothers and their likelihood for criminality high causal, causal relationship there apparently um so maslow uh the guy who established the hierarchy of needs he explains that should there be sec- should their security needs not be met uh, the organism may equally well be wholly dominated by them boom that speaks to me because you know when you need something it's the only thing that preoccupies you i really felt that Says, many female serial killers marry affluent men when they identify as protectors who have the means to keep them safe and spoil them as if they were children again. Mm. So this is highly characterized by an initial childlike desire for security and protection. Also, a husband's frustration when not experiencing a grown wife, right? So at some point... This woman is being very infantile and wants to be taken care of like a daughter. And her husband realizes this is a young lady. This is not a grown woman I'm married to. So the husband expresses irritation. And then the expressed irritation triggers rejection and insecurity. Which is a huge fear of of women. And this also trickles into considerations about money. And she kills him to inherit that money. Hmm what an interesting flow pattern okay uh, it says male serial killers do not socialize during the latency phase there's a stage in development very early on from the age of 6 to 12 years old male serial killers you know kids who are unfortunately raised in homes where this wasn't facilitated uh, d- hey <laughs> And finally, I'm going to go into. Since they never feel part of a group, they can easily treat their victims with a callous objectivity that amazes the rest of society. Um, Wealth makes men feel important and successful. Wealth makes women feel safe. Mm. Right? When they call us gold diggers, I won't say us. I'm not trying to murder nobody, but um, right. I'll leave it at that. I think we've gone very far with that, but yes, Mickey Pistorius, female killers, great insight about what women are over there doing. Um, so we'll be back very shortly, and we're going to then go into Indigenous Knowledge by a scholar that I really admire, and we'll speak a bit about government and contextualize using Lesotho of, and speak about some land reform stuff. Cool, we'll be back. there welcome back (coughs) so hope you're good again um so this section i wanted to do a bit of scholarly coverage about some articles i found very relevant well specifically a scholar i found very interesting and relevant who i think deserves all the praise um her name is bagelich lisa she is a pull up her not lie to you so she's a Zwana post-colonial scholar who constructed indigenous research methodologies and also a document called research methods for adult educators in africa and uh, she has a master's degree in research methodology and she outlines a respectful and inclusive blueprint for accessing unconventional knowledge systems she indicates Western-based theories, shortcomings when administered on colonial populations. So certainly um, demographics that are previously colonial projects. What I like a whole lot about her is so she's doing this thing that I find very interesting because the conversation about decolonizing academia tends to often come from like a very speculative space. With no real action, and so she constructed a document she published in 2019, whereby she she indicates how exactly we can do that. So a nice theoretical framework. She uses terminologies. She goes into strengths and weaknesses, challenges that are anticipated. She goes into the benefits, and also indicates what she means by indigenous knowledge. I have my own conception of indigenous knowledge. Um, And so I can go into that shortly, but um, I constructed my own list in a project that I had for my master's which was about the strength of of this kind of exploration, sociologically speaking, of this kind of knowledge. And the first strength I came up with was that it uh, engaging with indigenous African knowledge in the social sciences and sociology commands appropriately accessing, handling, and processing Within sociology and the social sciences of such kinds of knowledge, the next strength that I encountered was the preservation of culture and tradition. The next strength I came up with is that it situates African history as told by itself. The next was that it contributes to the grounding of African identity. The next was that it exposes the f- it exposes the flaws of certain indigenous African practices. Uh, I won't give an example because I'm not trying to denigrate certain um traditions but there are certain aspects of our of our culture that maybe we do not need to stand so hard on trying to preserve because they do not serve us anymore in fact prove to be quite dangerous and deadly (laughs) the next strength was that it's it poses the introduction of modern solutions for traditional problems the example of this that i thought of was for safer abortion Because by all means, abortion did not just come with white people, it's not a European practice, it's something that was underway even before colonization. But now at least with certain knowledges, we're able to ensure that we try to do this a little bit safer. The next uh, strength I came up with for engaging with African indigenous knowledge in sociology and the social sciences was that the introduction um, would pose traditional solutions for modern problems. This includes hauntings, this includes uncollected spirits, and it includes phenomena that even medical science in the Western uh, paradigm um, call sleep paralysis, which by all means, there's no way you can try to clinically indicate to everybody seeing a specter straddling them in their sleep and they're paralyzed. That certainly needs some kind of indigenous engagement. And the final strength I came up with is that um it would give the introduction of modern ways of conceptualizing Africanness. I think I'm quite guilty myself of always making Africanness an idea of the old or the past or the forgotten or something to be retrieved as opposed to engaging with Africanness as the current as what we're doing now. I know when I pursued my masters, frankly, I felt like I'm I don't know, uh, in a sphere that is not Authentic to my Blackness, my Africanness. And so it was posed that, you know, why can't academia be Black? Why can't science, why can't technology be African? We are able to adapt so many facets of the existence we have today, but I don't know why I myself was not able to make the synthesis that what we're doing right now, this is African, we're podcasting, this is african by virtue of the fact that an African is doing it, is that not enough? What is the criteria? Because we are all um, having these endeavors and scholarly um, aspirations and entrepreneurship and all these things we're going into that may not have been characteristic of the Africa of a certain time, but it is the Africa of now and the future. When people think of Wakanda, people are thinking of all kinds of very much revolutionary technologies and developments and creative imaginations i'm guilty and i certainly have to move away from pathologizing the african as the outdated the inefficient and the speculative um, but that's a job on my part um, in speaking about culture i also wanted to bring up a little bit <clears throat> a matter of what happens when a government is not in touch with exactly what it is that's occurring on the ground uh, in respects to, you know, the demographics they serve. When we speak about indigenous research methodologies, I believe Chilisa was trying to outline the fact that, sure, we can have social sciences, but can we have our social sciences too? Or can we have a social sciences? That is also centering us. Um, so I appreciate that. And so in focusing on land reform, I know typically that um resonates in the context of South Africa as a really very contentious or radical process. Um but Lesotho was an interesting case that I looked into whereby It proved that it had a more gradual, less contentious progression, but absolutely still manifesting as having certain issues. And when we wrap up, I'll go into the debt of a government and the government effect and what we can actually, what we're supposed to be demanding from a government. Um, So in terms of the mountain kingdom, Lesotho, I just kind of discovered how uh, the topic of land reform has been a frequently contentious topic spurred by varying combinations of disparities in socioeconomic outcomes, sustainable development prioritization, and racial discourse, among others, depending on the geography. Countries within the Southern African Development Community umbrella each uniquely grapple with their histories in relation to colonialism, poverty, and political instability, which compromise The delivery of effective land reform that delivers on sustainable, optimized rural development. And in the case of Lesotho, the prevalent land tennis system is being indicated by scholars, economists, politicians, researchers, as the cause of resultant land degradation that renders rural communities (laughs) unable to produce and sustain their livelihoods. Why does this matter? Well, I'm trying to get into the idea of the social contract and the answerability of a government, and how when that is interrupted, we have outcomes like the one we'll speak about shortly towards the end. <clears throat> I concluded that um, in the era of rapid globalization, um, what would uh, sorry, <clears throat> what is starting to manifest is um, the global South quote unquote. Uh, Our countries, Southern African countries, are engaging in development partnerships with the Global North and doing all these things and signing on for aid and all these other things that... I'm not an economist. I don't know about that. I'm also not a development specialist, but I feel like one indication that came up for me in looking into the literature behind this was that... Southern African nations, not just Lesotho, must be aware that we have a unique set of our own circumstances that may not align completely with the objectives developed nations have. And nations like ours, Botswana obviously, and Lesotho, surely, we should not deplete ourselves in attempts to keep up with foreign ideas of what development is. I feel nervous saying that just because My understanding is development typically means forward. And then I have to call myself out and say, well, why aren't certain uh, forms of development not seeming like they are forward? And clearly I've inherited ideas of what forward even means. But with that, we have seen nations disrupt themselves, compromise themselves, trying to be states that they are not, nations that they are not. A lot of scholars in my review were indicating how the needs to really focus on the one area about its land degradation because it actually is a geography that is very fertile for farming and agrarian livelihoods. Um, but because the elite, perhaps, or the bureaucratic leadership and perhaps um, foreign uh, investment don't give a damn about that really. It's become compromised because there's no emphasis on ensuring that that is protected. Um, so I'll close off on governments and then we'll speak a bit about the mass gathering that happened last week.. <laughs> so there's a simplistic theory um, called food availability decline thesis. And it basically speaks about how crises about food availability are purely contingent on the presence of food, right? We'll get into why that makes no sense. So obviously in the case of Ethiopia, there was drought and malnourishment and starvation. And that was what was outlined as the issue there. Um, But we later find that we have to make the distinction between there being not enough food in a country and there being starvation regardless of food being there because that's the juxtaposition in Ethiopia food was there but people were starving um, so often what's pointed to in 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 you know circumstances of starvation is drought famine plagues and of locusts and such um but then we look at the fact that in many places in the U.S. there's been drought and wildfires and things. But there's no starvation that occurs. And so we ask ourselves, if you are a development you know, practitioner, sustainable development practitioner, what really justifies starvation? So someone called Sen had a theory called the bundle of entitlements. And this is when... Um, it's a combination of circumstances one needs to secure their access to food. And Sen says how when the bundle is falling apart or is compromised, people's security of access to food is compromised itself, right? So it's four entitlements. The first is trade-based entitlements, production-based entitlements. Next is labor entitlements. And the last is inheritance and transfer entitlements. And so Sun finds that every human being has one or the other or even two entitlements, uh, whether they're staying rurally or in an urban settlement. And how their entitlements influence their command over food indicates how valuable or consistent and otherwise food is for them. And he calls that the command of access to food. Um, So the question is, why do some people starve when there is enough food in a country, right? Um, So, I mean, it's been concluded by development specialists that Ethiopian famine was due to lack of trucks from the north to the south. And not just a natural disaster, as it was painted and marketed. It was heavily marketed. Everybody remembers the image of the child with a fly on their face, You know, that's the image we recall. Wasn't a, what is it? Was it a crow? That bird that was waiting to eat the child who had expected to die shortly. Um, So yeah, uh, it says, even though other entitlements got affected by the disaster, ultimately trucks to move food, not being used to move the food is why food became short in the South. Note the emphasis. The starvation was in the South. It wasn't the entire Ethiopia and Lord knows it wasn't the whole of Africa. So the question is, why aren't people equally affected when there are droughts and famines? Um, it's a huge question. In the case of Mozambique, though different entitlements were compromised in says bundle of entitlements, as he said, we do not see mass starvation. And the conclusion that people are drawing to is that policy including the United Nations, they often get food security projections wrong because they look at it from a food availability decline perspective, which is the one we spoke about right at the beginning where we're saying people are starving because the food isn't there. But no, the food sometimes actually really is there. <laughs> it's about distribution and all these technical things that are being mismanaged. Um... And the unfortunate ramification for that is that the poor rural tends to be the demographic of the ones dying. Um, and so, in conclusion about Ethiopia, we'll say um, they lacked logistical capacity and correct approach. You understand. Those of us who recall those pictures and the feed the world and the imageries and the videos and Michael Jackson and like 20 artists in a music video showing hunger in Africa and all of this... That was the idea, was that we need to send aid, we need to send this. So, a question comes up for certain nations, perhaps including Botswana, because we have a whole lot of land out here, and a question is, who wants the land? Um, Do the kids of those who own or get land even intend to continue farming? Because farming isn't something that it takes decades to really thrive. It can, anyways. And... So who's to say that even if you are allocated land by the time of your death, that it's not just going to be sold off again back into the system that's accused of snatching it from you? Um, And it says here that people who long left rural communities um, happen to be the ones put in place to plan for rural communities. So maybe you leave the village, you leave Bubono, you come to the city, you get your qualification, you're a developmental specialist. And you come back after perhaps 10 years. Maybe you did your PhD. And frankly, you don't know nothing about nothing. You're not aware of what the culture is there. You're certainly not aware of what the needs are there. You come with your presumptions from what you used to know and damn, Sometimes you're not even from the place. You have a qualification. You're placed somewhere and told to fix things. And you just lack understanding. So in the case of Bangladesh... um. Women always had the role of grinding wheat into flour. And so what pro- aid programs did is that they brought grinding machinery. And this caused a cultural, a cultural um, it disturbed the dynamics of how people actualized themselves and performed labor. Um, and so the aid programs came in with their ideas and tried to ask men to ...operate this machinery and they ignored that that was originally a task for women. And also men did not care to do it. Because they looked at it as a task for women still. That was the social contract. In closing, the reason why I'm indicating all of this is... ...our governments owe us things. And they owe us to do things well. And the stories and excuses and the matters that arise are unacceptable... We absolutely have to be looking at them to be efficient, skilled, not just qualified, but I don't know what lens we could use to demand certain things. When I think of the amalgamation of artists that happened last week, it almost brought tears to my eyes because I said, this is an entire population of people who have been ignored. It's called an industry or artist or entertainer protest. But in reality, it's everybody who has not been getting listened to. Kids came. Kids didn't go to school. People left their jobs. People left their houses. Because it resonated. There's a job for our government. I think in Botonara, padilo how to demand. But I think it really hurt to see That demographic, everybody knows notoriously the area of Zola is one that's, you know, high crime, high this, high that, all these things. It's a place nobody wants to be. But I feel like it, it must have been so cathartic and therapeutic for people to finally have a lens shed on what they're living in. What if people actually got into, if media got into looking at where do these people live? Where do they work? Where do they school? Who are they married to? who are they raised by, who are they taught by, to see the profile of what a community like that ends up creating. I say that to say, our government is not allowed to ignore us when we ask for things because we shouldn't have to ask to start with. Ideally, they are delivering. But it really disgruntled me to hear that, you know, this. the entertainment industry has for a long time, I mean, I I, I write, that's my thing. I had to put that all the way to the side because there's no real platform for that. And I'm here doing a master's. But to try to enlist them who you have appointed to even listen to you and get ignored means there's a violation of the contract. And the person who led that amalgamation was not lying when they said, listen, we will mobilize people because we didn't make this up. This is a sentiment that is arising. It exists. It's, it's existed for a long time. People are disgruntled, sorry, <clears throat> neglected. They're not seen. And you've comfortably tucked them away. I always say there is a kind of marketing behind what's on poverty where it's called noble and humble. But no, it's just poverty. If you look at exchange rates and consider how much people are earning compared to other countries you will probably puke. Minimum wage in other countries is like a goal income <laughs> in our country. We're far behind. And with that, I'm just trying to say, um, let's consider more of what we require from this government so that uh, we start to at least begin engaging in the theorizations and the considerations economically, philosophically, institutionally, um, academically, culturally about what we're trying to create going forward and maybe it won't be something we'll realize but we have nieces nephews we have kids we're gonna have grandkids who better inherit something better if we die and this is what they find i'll be disappointed in us we are a wasted generation i know a lot of us are taking substances and drugs and using all these things we are not a a lost demographic, we are people who have needed things and didn't receive it, but it's not over, we're going to come back, we're creative, we're very informed, educated, and even when we're not, we're wise, we are learned in various fashions, we are in touch, and we know what it is to not have things, that is absolutely going to make us transform this entire country, on that note, um, I'm getting emotional. I think I'm just mostly moved by the idea that we have a government that is comfortable neglecting us. I'm a 26-year-old youth. I have, what, two qualifications? I'm going for a third. The arts, I had to leave the arts. (laughs) All this writing, I had to leave that behind. I'm trying to inch back into it, and I have colleagues who are exceptional entertainers who have to text me for 50 bucks to buy bread and tinned fish. And damn it, some of them have kids. And damn it, they have to stay in households where they're abused. Or people have to initiate relationships where they are just devalued and put down in supreme ways. And I myself have had to consider certain results. And continue to have to consider those results. But um, it doesn't have to be this way. I don't have a simplistic idea of how that could change. But Botswana is not the way it's supposed to be. Um, guys, thank you so much for listening today. I hope you take care of yourselves and we will come back next week. And I appreciate your listenership. And please email me at moreaboutyourpod at gmail.com. Um, let me know what you're thinking, what you're feeling, and we will talk soon. See ya.